Hello, this is Vlad and welcome to the Bitcoin Takeover. Today, my Hi. guest is Omar Faridi, who is from Pakistan, and we have established that we can actually talk about what Bitcoin looks like in our countries, how it's viewed by the authorities, as well as what the communities who use Bitcoin look like. But we can also talk about the state of capitalism and how countries which basically lost the race in the 19th century when the Industrial Revolution was at its peak, get the chance to actually become world powers by embracing a currency which is neutral from a political point of view. So hello, Mark. Would you please tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes. Hi, Vlad. I write about, I've been writing about cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology for the past year. Um, I follow the space every day. I check the news and I'm familiar with the different regulations that are being developed, reg the regulatory framework that countries are trying to develop, the different uh, exchanges that are out there, the different uh, startups and the, di the different big name companies. So I, and the, and the major cryptocurrencies, I follow it very closely and, uh, but, uh, but I feel like there are a lot of things that are in mainstream news that are reported more often than other things. And then there are those things that are not uh, so well reported or analyzed. And maybe we can talk about some of these things. Yes, sure. I'm pretty sure that since we both work in cryptocurrency journalism, we know a lot about what's going on in the United States or in other big markets where the adoption of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies can actually make a difference. But the question at stake right now is how much do we actually know about our own countries? How much do you know about the Bitcoin or cryptocurrency community in Pakistan? Right. Uh, there's... There's uh, not a very big community. Um, if if we look at it, uh, re you know, worldwide, even it's not a real very big community. There are, there are about thirty million to estimated uh, about fifty million people from the entire in the entire on the entire planet that are actually using cryptocurrencies, and then. The majority, vast majority of those people, um, according to what I know, are not based in, uh, of course, they're not, there are hardly any people out here in Pakistan. So I would think majority of these people are based in Western countries. Uh, but it's, it is, I, I know Bitcoin and uh, other cryptocurrencies are really popular, have become popular in Venezuela because of different re uh, other economic problems. Uh, in Argentina, I know that, but uh, I can't really speak for those places. But here in Pakistan, it's, it's, uh, there's a lot of misinformation and a, lot of dis and a lot of disinformation about cryptocurrencies. Like uh, many people just, just think it's a scam uh, because of you know, whatever small version of the story they heard from someone else and, and they don't really have much. There's an education problem here too. 
these people are not very well educated uh, because there's not much money that gets spent from the national budget on education. So public schooling is like terrible. If you want if you want somewhat of a decent education, you're going to have to pay for it. And if you want a good education, you're going to have to pay a lot for it. So they're very small percentage of people that can actually afford a good education. And even in those group, in, in that group of people, there are mostly people don't know about it. So it's like, I'm probably the only, I'm probably like one of the only people here out here in Pakistan that really even knows anything um, about Bitcoin. There used to be an exchange, a cryptocurrency exchange uh, that was, that got shut down. Um, people were no longer able to access their funds because the state bank, which is the central bank here announced that you're not, it told the local banks, you, you cannot offer services to people who are dealing in cryptocurrencies. Kind of like the same thing that happened in India, but maybe a little bit worse. So no, no, nobody's actually uh, really dealing in cryptocurrencies or at least openly. And there are still, and other than that, there are only a handful of people who who are, who may be trading them. But as far as having deep knowledge, nobody really knows what they are or what they do. Uh, there is one guy who who's developed his own coin. It's called uh, Pot Coin. It's like a fork of Litecoin. But if you go online and you check the market cap for it. It's like their entire market cap for it is like $34,000. So it's like, who, who, who's really bought that coin? Like maybe a few people. So the, that, that's pretty much kind of like how, what this, what it is. And then if you go and try to say, tell anybody that if, if you try to pay for anything with Bitcoin, they won't even know what it is. They have no idea what it is. So, um, uh, and, and even the most educated people out here, they don't know, most of them don't know what it is. For example, I, I, went, uh, I, was, I went to my son's school where, he's, where, he, where he attends school and uh, I wanted to, you know, I was filling out an admission application for my daughter because she's going to turn, she's going to be three years old and she's going to go to school over there. So the person taking our interview was the owner of the school. Uh, this is a, it's an old, a lady that runs the school and she is from the U.S. actually. She grew up in the U.S. She is American, but she opened a school out here. And then on the application, I wrote that, I, I, that I'm a news reporter or a journalist and I write about cryptocurrencies. So she's, she asked me, what is that? Like she had no idea what this what cryptocurrencies were. So it, that made me think, well, this is someone who's supposed to be uh, educated, but yet they don't know anything about uh, cryptocurrencies. So like in summary, what I can tell you is that there's probably a big room here for adoption and, and uh, Bitcoin could really take off here. Uh, it's just a matter of educating people. So what do you think? Uh, I think the issue which you described in these words are pretty general. 
you can find the same situation everywhere, regardless of education level or trust in the government. You, you just don't have many people who are aware how they can invest or how they can actually have a small reserve of money put into Bitcoin. But it's very different, I guess. I mean, I'm not sure what kind of political regime Pakistan has and what kind of leaders you elect or you have them inherit power. It's a, it's a dem democracy. It's supposed to be. Uh, it's supposed to be a democracy, but it's there's a lot of corruption and our last prime minister he was removed from power because uh, he he was found guilty of you know uh corruption so he's he's in um jail right now or prison and we have a new prime minister but the country is like really behind because we've borrowed a lot of money from the IMF and 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 we need to pay back our loans and we're not in a position to pay back our loans so we we have taken loans up on top of loans and that ha and then one of the conditions the IMF had is that you must drive up increase in interest rates and you must devalue uh, one of the monetary policies was to devalue our local currency. So that that w the currency has been devalued, and uh, the everything's become more expensive. Okay, so That's, let's take these two issues in turns. So when you go to vote, do you choose the representatives of your parliament who in their turn vote for the prime minister who is the leader of the country? Or do you also vote for a president who nominates the prime minister? Ah, okay. So is uh, it a parliamentary vote. republic? We, we vote for, we, we cast our vote for the party um, that is going to come into, that we, want, that we want for to come into power. So for example, there's party A and party B. And party B A elects certain person that that's gonna be our leader, and he's gonna be the prime minister once once everyone's has voted for our party. And the other party says the same thing. Here's our representative. He's gonna be our, the leader for our party. And if everyone votes for our party, then this person will be the leader or the prime minister of the country. So then you actually go in there and you vote for a full party. Like, I want to vote for this party because mm -hmm. I know this person is representing this party. So then whichever party gets the most votes, that's the party that comes into power. Yeah, you inherited the same electoral and bureaucratic system from the United Kingdom. They have their parliamentary regime, which is all about electing a party into power, and it's sort of a winner-takes-all kind of situation. But in their system, right. they, they have just two big parties. They have the Labour, and they have... What's the other one called? Mm, they are the right-wing party. Can... Um... 
I can look it up here. For the UK, you, you said, right? Yeah, it doesn't matter much. It's just the idea that you have a left-wing party and the right-wing party, and you just make them switch. And then you have smaller parties like the Greens and the Lib Dems, Liberal Democrats, who actually can swing the balance. They take about 5 to 10% of the votes, and they make coalitions with another party and establish a majority and they have the chance to actually make demands on their behalf just because they have this power to attract a segment of the voters. But anyway, it's important to me what kind of regime you have, and it turns out it's a parliamentary republic because it tells a lot about how, how free you are and to which extent you can actually adopt Bitcoin. Because according to this system of power, you actually determine how strong the opposition can be under certain circumstances. And it's been proven by centuries of human civilization that sometimes the conflict of ideas and the stronger opposition actually leads to progress. We've seen this happen since the Renaissance and Florence. And it's really fascinating how times of peace and general consensus don't really produce much, whereas constant ideological conflict actually leads us into progress. I guess this is also what created Bitcoin as a currency. It was the opposition to a status quo, which was inconvenient at the time. And I wanted to ask you something else about Pakistan, now that I remember. So if I give you right now, let's say a few Satoshis, and I tell you that you can transact them with somebody you know in Pakistan, would you find somebody to make Bitcoin transactions with? Yes, actually, it's a good question. Um, I can find uh, people here to do that. One way, um, you must have heard of local Bitcoins. Um, just go on to local peer peer-to-peer -peer exchange, local Bitcoins, and you register on there, you make an account, uh, you check for people online, you'll find people who are, who are buying and selling Bitcoins. And I know a friend, or not friend, but the guy I just came, this guy, he's a day trader, he's a stock trader, he trades out here with the stock exchange, but sometimes he will buy. He he will he used to buy bitcoins from me, and then he used to just uh, just take them from me and then probably just sell them at a somewhat of a higher uh, price than he what he brought it bought them from from me for. Uh, but it's not still it's not that easy to uh, transact in it because there's hardly any merchant here that will accept it. So if you were to go to a shop, let's say, no, actually I didn't make that sound very eloquent. So if you want to spend your Bitcoin somewhere, do you find an actual shop or a hotel where they accept Bitcoin through a payments processor? Uh, no. Uh, you're not gonna find any hotel, any restaurant that will take it, will take cryptocurrency, no. 
I guess that's how Romania and Pakistan are different. But I was actually going to ask you something else, just on a scale from one to 10, how free are you as a citizen of Pakistan? I would say that everyone's definition of free, freedom or it might be different from someone else's, but in my case, if, if I want, uh, whatever I, uh, I need to do, I am able to do pretty, um, pretty easily. Like I, if I want to go out somewhere, if I want to buy something, if I want to uh, go eat somewhere, there's, there's no, there's nothing, there's no restriction. And you, if, uh, you, if like we have our current government, if someone wants to go on TV and if they, <laughs> if uh, they want to talk negatively or if they want to express negative views uh, or call out someone, even if they're in the prime minister, they, we, I, we can actually speak, speak our mind. We can say what we want about uh, whatever it is. So I would think that, I would think that given that, given all that, I would think it's a pretty uh, pretty free place, but at the same time, that being free doesn't mean that quality of life can be is also would also be good because um, for for the majority of people here, except for very few people who have money, uh, for most of the people that live here, life is not the quality of life is not that good because of. Uh, uh, um, Lack of opportunities and and corruption. I was actually checking right now on the index which the Freedom House publishes every year, and it turns out that Pakistan is not really free in terms of internet access. You have obstacles oh. to access. You have limits on content and violations of user rights. So when I think about Bitcoin, it's a currency of the internet which you cannot really take away from its native network, not just yet with Blockstream satellites. But if it's this bad and you can actually get imprisoned or you can have your connection blocked. Oh, no. Okay. Yeah, that, you, you that's, I don't think that's true. No, no, that's, see, that's what, that's one of the things that's good about uh, speaking, like speaking to someone who's actually living here. That's not really true. Uh, you can do, you can do pretty much uh, what you want over the internet, and with um, there, if there might be there, there's like tele, Telegram. It's really popular, but Telegram is blocked here in Pakistan for some for some reason I don't know, but. Um, uh, if you use VPN, if you just start using a virtual private network, you can go on to any website you want to. But me personally, I don't really use Telegram, so uh, there are maybe a handful of sites I couldn't, I can't really go on. But if you really want to see an internet get censored, you should go out to China, which I did. And over there, you have to get a VPN because 
you can't even use Google and Facebook and most other things if you have, if you just access the internet without VPN. So overall, my satisfaction with internet access here is I'm pretty satisfied. Uh, what, what, what I wouldn't want to do, what, what I wouldn't like doing out here in Pakistan is maybe working for a company or maybe working for someone locally out here. And the reason for that is simple. Uh, reason is that the salaries are really very low. So to give you an idea, the, uh, if, if I had, was working in a, a, a senior level position, maybe at the bank, or not senior, like mid-career mid level position, if I was working at a professional mid-career level job out here, my salary would be around four, $300 to $400, $400 per month. So in that salary, I wouldn't be really be able to achieve much in that salary. So me personally, I find it better to work with companies that are located uh, outside of Pakistan and work remotely because the job opportunities are better. So uh, I don't have any issues with internet access. Um, I don't have issues with freedom, uh, but I do have issues with economic things like the salaries, salaries here for people are not good. Okay. I was just thinking right now that maybe if the government has blocked applications like Telegram, it just means that they want absolute control to surveil over the content. I know that in Telegram, you can actually establish private channels which have auto-destructing messages and that's a layer of privacy which maybe they do not like as a government. But I was thinking right now, would they ever block you from mining Bitcoin or from running your own node? Oh, no. They, um, there's, uh, they wouldn't actually do that. And the uh, reason for that is kind of... Uh, um, it's because... What, there, there are not enough resources out here to do many things. For example, one of the problems is tax evasion and in, inability to effectively monitor people and see how much money that they might be earning because it, there is no proper tax collection collection system out here because you actually need resources. You need you need to set up a good uh, administrative office who can, <coughs> who can perform those functions. And a lot of people take bribes. A lot of people uh, say, all right, well, I'm the tax collection guy. You give me my percentage here, and then I'm going to give you a, like a, a tax break on the side. So there's a lot of people taking shortcuts um, like a lot of people taking shortcuts like that. So uh, when it comes to actually saying, all right, someone could say, yeah, so our, we're going to make Bitcoin mining illegal. All right. Well, in order to make it illegal, you need to be able to enforce that. How are you going to enforce it? You're going to go door to door, check people's houses. Oh, look, look at that. You have a server, you have computers. Are you mining Bitcoin? It takes, you know, it takes effort and money to send people out there. And then in the process, they might say, okay, we're not going to monitor. Uh, you give us uh, some money on the side or whatever it is, and we're going to let you go. So 
it's it, it's corruption everywhere from the top to the bottom. So they couldn't they wouldn't really be able to enforce uh, anything like that. Okay, but in the case of mining, I guess it's pretty obvious as you have a larger consumption of electricity, so it becomes much more obvious that you're not running anything sizable in your house to actually justify that large consumption of energy. So if they check to see how much you're consuming, they can actually figure out that you might be yeah, running. They can, but they, they can figure it out. But a lot of the, a lot of things here, people turn a blind eye to. Uh, people are also stealing electricity here. So there are ways to, you know, <coughs> cut off the meter and people start stealing electricity. Uh, when they start stealing electricity, you know, they don't, they, it's, they don't need to pay their electricity bill. So there's like so much uh, miss, there's so much mismanagement out here that even if someone is mining Bitcoin, they, they would be like on the last person or one of the last things on their priority list because they have uh, many other higher priority things to take care of. Like we need to, first of all, we need to get rid of people who are stealing or stop people who are stealing electricity. And after we stop those people, we need to figure out who is, uh, you know, uh, it's kind of like there's like bigger, bigger things to solve here than doing that. Right. So, And I was thinking like, right now, do you think that if you were to switch to a certain percentage of your GDP to Bitcoin and actually allow it in your local economies and your national economies, you think that the living standard would be affected positively? First of all, people would need, they're, they're, I mean, it's like, <clears throat> we're so behind here and everything. Um, people don't even know what a computer Yeah, take that out of the equation. Let's just assume that everybody knows how to use a private key and a public key and they know how the technology works and they embrace it huh. and they decide to use it maybe starting tomorrow. Do you think that embracing this trend and being the first country in the world to accept Bitcoin as a second currency officially would actually give you a kickstart in world capitalism and give you leverage in relation to other nation states? It, it depends because right, as we know, um, price of Bitcoin is, has not been stable. It, 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 it starts to get stable like right now, you know, it's getting there, it's becoming stable. But the last time, if you remember that it was stabilizing The Bitcoin price was is like, you know, volatility was really low and it was trading at around 6,500. And then boom, we saw that drop below 6,000, then quickly below 5,000, then it did below 4,000 and it was almost at 3,000. Now it's recovered back to 4,000 and it's kind of been stable. It's getting stable a little bit, but from this, the, st the stability period, can last only so long. And then after that period, it either takes a big dip downwards or it takes a bit of a step upwards. But 
if you look at the price since reaching 20,000 almost, Bitcoin has progressively gone down throughout 2018. And now we are here in 2019 and we still have not recovered um, the price we had in late 2017. But, but that might not be the best way to look at it because if you compare it to January 2017, Bitcoin was trading at around 1,000. So if we look at it from back then, we're not that we're not that bad. We're not doing too badly. But I personally think for Bitcoin to succeed in Pakistan, it doesn't matter if it's a fifty thousand dollar Bitcoin or a twenty thousand dollar Bitcoin. That price should stay the same. So if Bitcoin remains priced at ten or twenty, whatever, pick a number. It just remains stable at that price. Then if I pay Pay for a jacket. If I'm if I'm a store and I'm selling a jacket, and uh, and someone buys my jacket and gives me uh, so much in Bitcoin, that Bitcoin must be able to retain its value. So my my so so I'm not going to be losing money when I'm selling jackets. Do you do you see what I mean? Like stability needs to be there if if Bitcoin can help the economy. I agree. I wasn't referring too much to the idea of price volatility in time because as it gets much more embraced and as serious actors who actually see the potential of it as a currency actually begin buying it, we will not be seeing so many sellouts at high prices and people will actually embrace you know, the HODL philosophy and see it as a way to transact maybe through the Lightning Network and not but, as an asset but, which gets traded just like an Apple stock or a commodity like gold and silver. But even national currencies can have depreci depreciations, if that's what you call it, when you lose a lot of the value in a short amount of time due to Forex traders and the politics that go within the state. Because basically, we have a system of reference to currencies, which is actually we use the US dollar as an international indicator of a currency's success. And whenever we see volatility, it's because large sums of money or investors go out of the country. And we have actually seen the Turkish lira lose a lot of value in 2018. We have also seen that in Venezuela, where it's much more convenient to embrace the volatility of Bitcoin than to actually use the Bolivar. And when I think about using Bitcoin as at a nation state level, it's more about having the values of the kind of currency that nobody can confiscate and that makes you sovereign over your own funds, which the government cannot intervene on to change the supply or leverage anything regarding the ownership. So it's yours. You possess it, you can sell or you can use it whenever you want to, and you can use it at an international level without any kinds of stops in between. 
And I think one of the most popular ideas which I heard from Alena Vranova, who right now works at CASA, I had an interview with her last week and she told me about it, is that countries which are under a trade embargo and cannot sell their oil, for example, or gold or any national resources, they can actually open a market for Bitcoin and other corporations or nation state entities can buy from them with Bitcoin. Since they're not allowed to transact in US dollars or national currencies, they can actually accept Bitcoin and there's nothing anyone can do about it. Well, that, that's actually true. There's, I can't really think of, um, I can't really think of uh, a way to um, stop them. But since you, since you just mentioned um, Venezuela, can you tell me uh, what your thoughts are about um, Petro? Uh, I mean, I, I've written about it quite a lot, but I want to I want to know what you think. What's you, What's your opinion about it, and what do you think about it? I think they managed the whole release very poorly. I know, as far as I read, there is no certainty in this field. I don't speak or read Spanish to be able to comprehend the official documents. But as far as I had the chance to inform myself, they did not really sold the technical details very honestly. So they were not transparent about what kind of cryptocurrency the Petro actually is. So it's hard for people to actually trust a government and the system which promises to back their natural resources in a certain digital currency as long as they don't actually expose fundamental details about how you issue the currency, who is in charge of it, what is the maximum supply, why you should be investing in it in the first place. So if you think about it, maybe that they wanted to create something which resembles a security token, which guarantees that you hold an asset like the Venezuelan petrol or their gold or whatever national resources they have. But it was not at any point very clear what you do if you buy petrol. It was never easy to actually acquire it. And it seems like the government has had a very powerful leverage on the supply and how it's distributed. So it's very much like one of these ICOs which have a pre-sale. And before it goes to the public, you actually create these owners of large supplies who are actually in good terms with the creators. So this is the parallel which I like to make in this context that Venezuela maybe has enriched a few of their elites with a supply of petro. And from that point onwards, they can go on and sell on the international markets to people who believe into their promises of offering a guarantee of holding something resourceful from their treasury. And it doesn't seem very honest when I think about it. It's not transparent. It doesn't hold any of the values that Bitcoin has. And by values, I mean properties. It's not sound money. 
It's not really an asset. It's a way for them to try to get away from the trade embargo, but it's a very dishonest approach. So that's what I think about it. Um, yeah, uh, I, I agree. And there was, there's news. Of, I, I know you know that, that the president, Maduro, <clears throat> he's always saying we're going to either collect taxes. The latest today, I think, was collect taxes on cryptocurrency earnings, but that wasn't related to Petro. It was like, we're going to denominate this in Petro. We're going to we're going to um, change how we denominate the boulevard and it, the petrol is going to be so much uh, per barrel of oil because it's backed by oil. Uh, sometimes it's going to be backed with, you hear something about being backed by gold or other natural resources out there. But Reuters uh, did a, a three to four month extensive report investigation where they sent their reporters actually to Venezuela. They were living out there or meeting with people. They were uh, attend, They were asking residents about different questions. So this happened over three or four months and they did their investigation and reported it. And in all of that, this basically the conclusion was there was no evidence of, of, of the Petro being used for any kind of transaction. There are no major exchanges that accept it or trade it, which is true even now, and it has no trading volume. So uh, that's pretty much where it stands. But I also think in all in this whole situation, there is not one person who we can say is totally dishonest or it's entirely their fault. For example, we can't really blame it entirely on Maduro or his administration. I don't think that's correct. I think the bigger picture might be that that uh, the as far as the U.S. Uh, U.S. is concerned and the U.N. Uh, uh, they might they might you know be because uh, whenever you have sanctions on a country, there are sanctions on North Korea. There are sanctions on. Q Cuba, there are sanctions on Iran and many other countries, and this is often and and Venezuela, and this is and these are U.S.-led sanctions. So when when a country is cornered from all these angles, they kind of start collapsing from within, and they kind of become desperate. So the, in in the end, who who do you think really suffers? It's, it's the people that live there, right? It, if I'm living in Venezuela, I'm going to be suffering. And I'm suffering because I've got these people in power who are centralized governments, and, and they're making all the calls and all the decisions, and ultimately it's affecting millions of people. That's, see, see what I mean? Yes, and that's exactly why... Some residents and citizens have started to accept Bitcoin as a mean of payment, and they would rather take this or U.S. dollar than anything which has to do with their government. But I guess they actually prefer Bitcoin for the same reason why it was created, because it cannot be confiscated. It's digital, it's stored 
online in a public ledger. And there is nothing that the government can do to confiscate it except for maybe torture them or infiltrate their houses without their consent and look for public and private keys. So in this sense, it's much more secure to hold Bitcoin in that territory, which is led by a bona fide dictatorship than to actually have U.S. dollars, which can be easily confiscated, or the Bolivar, which can be inflated by the policies of the central government. But I was thinking right now that the approach that they had was very much akin to what these people were doing with ICOs in 2017 and 2018, when they were saying that they invented a more scalable, a faster, and more reliable version of Bitcoin. It was all about improving on the protocol without actually retaining the qualities that give it value, which is resistance to censorship, as well as having a long blockchain, which is hard to attack, and having a large community because the network effect is much more important than the actual number of transactions per second a currency can do. And it's also right. the lack of a central point of failure. Every other cryptocurrency project has a known creator, maybe except for Monero. But even in the case of Monero, you have a few vocal figures who maybe are representatives of the technology and they are the developers, but they are not as many as in the case of Bitcoin. And if you try to break it, it's very complicated and it takes an international cooperation between nation states. And in terms of incentives right now, I think that's very unlikely. Nobody really wants to do it because that would, that would break at least the illusion that we have right now of an international free market. So it would be detrimental to big investors that they have who actually vote politicians into power, at least in the United States of America. And you can actually see and hear how people from Washington, D.C. talk about this new world of cryptocurrencies and how they want American companies to succeed and be in a position which retains their supremacy over the international market. So they actually figured out that this whole idea about Bitcoin can be a monetary revolution and they are trying to act accordingly. And if I recall correctly, it was Vladimir Putin, the, pres the president of Russia, who made a speech at one point in 2018 and said that their country is a true world power. They have gold, they have oil, they have diamonds, they have all the natural resources that they can think about. But the 21st century is not that much about owning physical resources. And it's also about what is digital and immaterial. And at that point, he proposed to create a cryptocurrency which can be used among the trade allies of Russia and establish 
maybe an equivalent of the European European Union with the countries which are friendly to Russia and this maybe establish something which is similar to the USSR, but is much more about economic exchanges than about having political control. But as we got to find out sometimes having economic supremacy over a country and selling it a lot of products can actually mean a political leverage. And once you accommodate the citizens of a certain nation state with a product, and let's think about the Colgate toothpaste maybe, which I guess is global. Everybody uses Colgate. But if you want to use that, you have to be in very good terms with the United States of America, which is where Palmo Live, the company which produces Colgate, originates from. It's the same with Starbucks, McDonald's, and all these global brands, which are actually American and are actually political ambassadors of the United States, as they don't just sell you a product which might be of the same quality of everything else that you find across the world, as in you walk into a McDonald's in Pakistan. I'm sorry. So you walk into a McDonald's in Pakistan and you expect to have the same Big Mac that you have in Arkansas in the United States. So you also have this idea that you're tasting something which comes from the free world. And as soon as you get accustomed to these products, you actually appropriate some dimensions of this free market and free speech and free everything that the United States is trying to promote at a diplomatic level across the planet. Right. Um, um, it, if, you, if you think about it, McDonald's uh, or, or Starbucks, um, these, these places, they sell like Starbucks sells coffee, uh, McDonald's sells, sells hamburgers. But if you look at the hamburger or you look at the coffee, can't you buy the same thing at uh, some other place? You can. And it could be that that burger or coffee is better than these these uh, big name places, but it's just the name. <coughs> is it just the name that they're trying to sell? And is it is it? Uh, it's working though because um, I, when I've been to <coughs> uh, different countries, uh, I, when I was in different countries in the uh, Middle East. When I was in China, when I went to, when I used to live in the U.S., well, there, of course, yeah. And then when I'm here in Pakistan, it's the same thing. Uh, we, when people, when you tell people we're, go, we're going to McDonald's, they get really excited, or there's like this, this, this uh, perception in their head, oh, we're going to somewhere where we're, it's going to be better than someplace else. When in actuality, is it better? Is it better? Well, it depends on your term of comparison. But I guess what I was trying to imply is not necessarily to have a discussion about the quality of Starbucks or McDonald's, but that these are actually world standards, which are 
like the well, just, term of comparison to everything else. You say you can make great French fries, but are they the same as you find at McDonald's or are they any better? Are they healthier? And to this extent, I think also as a cryptocurrency, Bitcoin can become a world standard. You're going to have many other altcoins, which say they, they deliver faster transactions and quicker validations. But it's more likely for a small business to run out of business. And it doesn't make much sense when I put it this way. But altcoins can die off very easily, just like small restaurants can just close operations. Whereas when you have something global, which, have a, which has a small shop in every major city and has the potential to constantly expand and grow, then you actually have a global phenomenon which you can hardly stop unless you stop using it. But then again, it sells you a certain idea about what it should be. It's not about the product itself, but about the lifestyle which you associate when you buy it. Well, but before I talk about that, I mean, you talked about security. All right, you talked about if this if this currency is secure, and then if we're talking about proof of work, um, the bigger the network effect, and the more people securing the net, the more uh, entities that are securing the network, uh, the more secure it'll become. And uh, I mean, recently Ethereum Classic, there was news about Ethereum Classic and uh, someone controlling majority of the hash rate. So that's a, that's a relatively large network because like last year we saw like Bitcoin Diamond and Vertcoin. These are smaller, much smaller cap coins that got hit with, the, uh, with these attacks. So when we're talking about adoption and security, we definitely want a network that's not going to be uh, vulnerable to attacks. So that, I think Bitcoin and Ethereum are, are the safest when you, when you look at in terms of security and network effect. So for, for adoption, I think that's important. Yeah, and you also have the advantage of having the longest history. You have the guarantee that up to this point, it has worked. And right. you have a large number of supporters and users who actually say that the fact that you're not changing anything is a proof that the system is functioning properly. Whereas other cryptocurrencies, I think Ethereum has a schedule of hard forks which take place every few months. They have a long roadmap which programs these hard forks. Next week, I'm not sure when this gets published, but at the time we're speaking next week, they are going to have the Constantinople hard fork. Which... It, it, will, it will be around a block height, uh, 7 million uh, and 800 or 8,000. That should fall between 14th and 16th of January. So uh, today is... Ninth, uh, so we're we're talking about and in, in about a week from now, week or or maybe a a day or two earlier. 
Mm-hmm. So and I, uh, I was when, about. Whenever, yeah. No, you go first. Whenever, whenever that blog gets mined, <coughs> uh, whenever uh, that, whenever that blog gets mined. Did did I lose you? Okay, you're saying Hello? when whenever that block gets mined and then uh, we Constantinople. Lost Sorry, yeah, I just got back on. Uh, whenever that, as you, I'm sure you're aware. Whenever that block gets mined, uh, Const Constantinople will be activated, and there will be uh, five different. Uh, Ethereum improvement uh, proposals that will go, that will uh, go become live, and then if if there is an if there is a problem, if there is a technical issue, that's all right because the clients um, they have been programmed so that if there is a problem, then the whole system can be can be rolled back to the same state. As it was before activating uh, Constantinople, but I think that's just uh, like uh, nothing too too serious because I think I don't think there should be any problems. And then hopefully the these progressive updates can keep on going, and hopefully we can get to Ethereum uh, 2.0 and start start moving towards uh, scalability. And personally, if you, I'm not sure about you, but personally, I trust Ethereum developers a lot more than uh, developers of other platform or other other D app platforms or smart contract platforms. I mean, I trust them in in both ways. I trust them in their technical ability, and I trust them in their honesty as far as their commitment to the network and i know that they're not in it just to make money or and to be in it for their own fame i think they're in it for actually the technology itself so that's my that's my opinion about it when it comes to ethereum i like the idea of doing smart contracts i think right. it's a great innovation but i don't like the whole ico bubble which they they encouraged at first everybody to create their own currency and tokenize everything that you can think about. And then they saw how their blockchain can get congested, even with something as simple as a game with cards like CryptoKitties. So I think they have a long way to go before they make their system truly functional and they didn't have quite the right start with pre-mines, and they also had that hard fork during the DAO hack. Well, uh, I mean, uh, the way I look at it, okay, if if I have Bitcoins or if I, if I have money or anything, I can misuse it, I can use it for something bad, and I can use it for something good. If I... If I use Ethereum and if I use the network to develop a project and I want to have a coin and I decide I'm going to be like BitConnect and run a big Ponzi scheme and a scam, uh, there's 
that that's the choice that I made and I made the wrong choice. So it, it's like a tool that can be used for good things and bad things. But the, the fact that there are no built-in controls to prevent abuse, uh, that's something maybe we should be thinking about. What I like about Ethereum is the way they decentralized development. So they financed lots of small teams across the planet and they work on protocols like Plasma, like Raiden and whatever other projects they have. I know that the core team, the biggest members are working on sharding and how they want to implement governance on their blockchain. I know that another Romanian whose name is Vlad Zamfir is one of the biggest and most influential developers that they have in their community. But at the same time, I don't like it as much as Bitcoin for the simple reason that they have many arbitrary changes like they did last summer when they delayed the time difficulty bomb and said that they want to allow miners to have rewards just as big for a longer time as soon as they saw that the price action is not working in their favor. And I also don't like the fact that they are making it so hard for anyone to run a node. So the network is not as decentralized anymore. The more they, I think that's the point of sharding, but the more they grow with their blockchain, it gets increasingly difficult for anyone to participate in the network. Maybe that once they get to 2.0 and proof of stake, this is going to change noticeably. But I don't see at this point how... I see their network as a big mess in which they were not sure what to do and when to do it. And they react sometimes to momentary changes and they take into consideration other scenarios, which isn't necessarily bad, but they have given up on immutability. And there are many, many more ways in which you can shut down Ethereum than Bitcoin. I think that's what my biggest concern is. Well, I, I don't, I don't like to compare those two because uh, I think that they, they are, they are. <clears throat> a, conceptually different and they are they have different use cases bitcoin i want to think of it as uh there's uh, up it's up to you whether you want to use it as a, a medium of exchange or store of value but it, it it still needs time before it evolves into being effective for either being a store of value or a medium of exchange but uh, it's more there, you're doing, it seems like you're doing a lot less, a lot less to worry about compared to Ethereum. Because with Ethereum, you've got to worry about, um, all right, so if, if there's a project that needs to get launched, my network is really slow. I need to scale the network. Uh, then I probably need to build in some kind of safety controls uh, to prevent people from abusing the network for whatever reasons they want to. There shouldn't be anything like uh, a, re- a repeat of if some of the, uh, of the DAO attack that happened. Uh, so there, there, should, need, there will, should need to be 
Uh, let's hard forks as we move on. Um, if 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 this thing can really turn into the world computer, there's just a lot more to take care of with Ethereum. Um, I think it's possible we're gonna get there, but it's not gonna happen anytime soon. And with Bitcoin, uh, I also think that Bitcoin is going to be. Uh, it's not gonna go anywhere. It's, it's gonna be the dominant. It's gonna remain the dominant uh, coin, and eventually will will. It'll it'll be more defined what Bitcoin is going to be offering. Is it going to turn into gold 2.0? Uh, time will tell. But uh, I just think these two projects, both Ethereum and Bitcoin, they they will go places. Uh, they will they will have a place uh, in society, in in economics, in, in the in the world's economy ten years from now, and they'll have. A more much more prominent role role than what they do now, but just how prominent and exactly what role that will be and exactly what impact that will be, we don't know yet. Nobody can say. So nobody sure, can say that. I guess that's the beauty of our discussion that we we don't have many certainties. We have this kind of technology, which nobody really knows how to define. And if you are from a specific background and work in a type of profession, then you are more likely to see something else than somebody who, who is a programmer or an economist. And I guess that's the whole point and beauty of Bitcoin. The more you analyze it from different points of view, the more you realize that the incentive system is just brilliant. And there is so much that it can accomplish into this world economy. And I actually had this discussion with a friend yesterday. He was basically affirming the same arguments of the Austrian School of Economics, that the world is in such a great depth and Bitcoin is our savior, which is here to free us from the chains of a broken system. And I actually told him that I don't think that there's going to be much of a change in our lifetimes in terms of adopting it as a world or national currency, as governments are very unlikely to give up on the power which they have. They possess the means of information. They have official channels to communicate to the citizens what they think. And so far, we have seen how they approached the idea of Bitcoin in a rather aggressive way. And it's not so long ago that they would try to warn us that it's a Ponzi scheme or a pyramid scheme and it's going to collapse. And we have seen all these economists who are very respected and renowned in their fields of research and study like Stiglitz and Noriel Rubini they affirmed that Bitcoin is a big bubble and a pyramid scheme. It was the most popular media narrative that we have seen. And I remember even last year here in Romania that I listened to a radio show and they were just making fun of the idea of any type of cryptocurrency and said, you know, back in my day, we had regular Ponzi schemes and they didn't need to be on the internet, but now it's like a fool's gold. 
And I, I think that in the last year, even though the price has decreased a lot, we have seen a big change in terms of narrative as big institutions have announced their intentions to get into the game. We have exchanges like Gemini, which try to promote ETFs, which are not maybe a result of the cypherpunk dream of having a currency of the internet, which is not censorable or cannot be leveraged by governments, but they can be a good gateway to welcome a lot more investments from regular people who gain more trust in cryptocurrencies and specifically Bitcoin. And also we have seen the network mature to the extent that we have acknowledgements by researchers who work into resolving political, not political science, I wanted to say computer science problems. And they actually affirm that there is no central point of failure in Bitcoin. And that's essentially the part which doesn't make it a Ponzi scheme. They try to improve it. And we have seen soft forks like SegWit slightly improve the ways in which transactions are made and how the blocks work. We no longer have the block size. We have a block weight, which can extend to, I guess, three megabytes. We also have promises of development in terms of privacy and fungibility with Schnorr signatures. Maybe that will have confidential transactions. We will definitely have a larger adoption of the Lightning Network, which so far has functioned without issues in the year that it has been on the main network. And also we have companies like Blockstream, which deploy satellites in, yeah, in the atmosphere, I think. I wanted to say outer space, but it's not really outer space. It's the atmosphere of Earth. So the fact that we know all these pieces of information, we can actually figure out that beyond the media narrative and beyond all the warnings that economists are making from time to time, we are actually speaking of a global phenomenon that, first of all, cannot be stopped. And it's still in the early days. So maybe we don't know how it will be valued in US dollars in the coming months and in the coming years. But it cannot actually fail if there is so much interest in it. And if it has become in the interest of so many smart people to develop it and help it flourish and reach its goal of becoming sound money for the entire world, which cannot be censored and is actually held like a better version of gold just because it's portable and it's harder to confiscate, then I guess we can be slightly more positive when we talk about it. And I know it has its scalability issues. I know that mining causes maybe climate change issues, but on the other hand, it creates a bigger market for renewable energy sources. 
And I well, guess every, uh, everything. I just wanted to finish it and say at this point, the sky is the limit. So we can actually make suggestions or propositions or speculations about the use cases in which it can revolutionize the entire world or at least the way we perceive currencies and value. But, but think about what you just said. You, you mentioned uh, a lot of things. You mentioned Schnorr signatures. You mentioned uh, um, public key, private key, uh, all these um, terms that are technical and remember we, we if we want mass adoption if we want most of the people using it just the way they're using using fiat money or physical money if we're gonna want people to use this stuff we're gonna have to make it almost as easy where they don't really have to learn much to adopt it and start using it and, and we need to really give them a reason to start using it. So a lot of these things would need to become um, a lot more user friendly. Like if if I'm if I'm being able to use blockchain for, but I don't I'm not I don't care about blockchain. I care about money and I care about being able to transfer it quickly and cheaply. Uh, we're we're trying to to solve a problem, and by but by uh, discussing all these technical things with people who, who, who don't care about it or who are not that technical, uh, which is a lot of people, I think, uh, we might lose them. So the, the first question they'll ask is, what is it going to do for me? What is it going to do for me right now that I can't do already? I think this is exactly what Roger Veer thought about when he created Bitcoin Cash as he figured out that we have reached, at least in 2017, when he did the hard fork, we have reached a level where it's so easy to download a mobile wallet to buy some coins from an exchange. And from that point onwards, it's just as straightforward as using your credit card. You just scan a QR code and you do an on-chain transaction. And that's pretty much it. You don't have to think about anything else and the fees are very low. So from this perspective, Bitcoin Cash and Litecoin and Dogecoin and whatever else cryptocurrency has maybe a smaller number of users and therefore also has low priced transactions is actually useful for commerce right now at this point. It can help so many people transfer value cheaper than with PayPal, cheaper than with Western Union and MoneyGram and all these. But at the same time, I think that we should work on decentralizing exchanges and having as many lesser centralized, lesser political, Lesser oligopolic in the sense that you just have a few big actors who take advantage of the state of the market and they can charge you maybe $20 per transaction when you want to exchange from crypto to fiat. So in this sense, it's not really more 
convenient or financially sound than using cryptocurrencies, than using uh, Western Union. That's what I wanted to say. But I think we will have in at least two or three years more convenient interfaces and we will have much more awareness. And I like what some people do with their publicity even smaller cryptocurrencies like Digibyte and Litecoin have paid money to raise awareness about their existence and what they can do. And I know that they're not Bitcoin in this sense, and they can be called scams just because they have founders who are known and they, they have big holders of the coin and maybe 50% of the supply... Yeah, but if 50% of your supply or more than 50 is held by 10 people and they can maneuver and they can leverage the price, you already have the mechanism which resembles a central right. bank. Yeah. So yeah. the value or the price, because price and value are different as concepts. So the price of the currency is up to the goodwill of a few people. And that's not much better than having a central bank, because in the case of a central bank, you can actually change or slightly adjust the policies if you organize protests or if you vote for a certain party to go into power and maybe adjust certain aspects of the financial policy. Whereas in the case of a few people who hold a large amount of the supply of a currency, you don't actually have much except maybe the only way of protesting against them is to stop using the currency and basically they will hold something which is pointless and useless. So that's my criticism in regards to them. But in terms of what they do, I think, unlike a lot of Bitcoin maximalists, my opinion is that they raise awareness and they can actually offer a gateway to Bitcoin. So if you make experiments with something like Dogecoin and you buy $10 of Dogecoin and make transactions and figure out how the wallet works, how a blockchain works, you play with the block explorer, you see your transactions, you check your wallet, you maybe play with a hardware wallet like a ledger or a Trezor and you see how it's stored. And you don't really care that you lose $10 in Dogecoin. That's not a very worthy cryptocurrency. But it's a good gateway and it's an educational way to find out about Bitcoin. And as soon as you join maybe Twitter and you start to follow people and you realize the arguments for Bitcoin, that's going to be the moment when you realize, okay, so this whole Digibyte or Dogecoin moment or phase of my life was just an introduction to something bigger. It's just like, I, I cannot think of a proper introduction. Maybe when you go to the gym and you do a certain type of exercise and it's fun at first, you don't really see the point, but then you discover the kind of sport in which you can use all that hard work and all that learning and that's when it actually begins to make sense or you find a real world 
application of whatever muscle you're developing and you end up producing something of value. So I guess that's the comparison which I make with starting with a cheap altcoin, which you can afford to lose and then getting into Bitcoin. But then, then again, you have people who buy large amounts of shit coins, which have a low market capital and expect to make gains and then they lose a lot of money. And I don't think historically speaking that is the case with Bitcoin. Up to this point, whenever there was an all-time high in this early phase of adoption, you had a bear market which lasted for a few years. And from that point, you only had a larger growth. And when you see that there's so much development going on with the network, you have an increasing number of people who become interested. And then you have major publications from mainstream media like Time Magazine, which publish favorable articles in which they mention that Bitcoin is a guarantee of liberty for the world. And it's a way of ensuring that we will have open markets despite of what governments do, then that's exactly what gives you a hint that we are part of something bigger. Well, um, the, the thing is that whatever, whatever we're a part of, whatever's happening, <clears throat> I just, I just think that we should, uh, I like to keep a moderate view about everything. Uh, I don't like to give a technology more credit than uh, it, it maybe should deserve at a certain point. And I don't, I don't like to uh, call something, I don't think anything is completely bad all the time. Um, for example, Bitcoin, as it is right now, it's some, some transactions might be slower. And then trans, because transactions are final, there is no disputing transactions, which can be looked at as good and bad. So um, there's nothing perfect. And then, uh, and then nobody should be telling someone, hey, you better use Bitcoin. You better stop using this money. And or even telling people that other projects are bad and they are a scam when you don't know much about those projects yourself. For example, with uh, Ripple and XRP, uh, there's news all the time. And now we, with the latest news was that uh, over 200 merchants or companies worldwide or, or institutions are using Ripple's products or RippleNet, they're on that network and they're using it for payments and they're not using it in design phase, they're using it actually in a production stage. So, uh, which tells me that, okay, they must have a product that works. So if, if I'm gonna be a Bitcoin maximalist, I shouldn't be out there just, uh, you know, talking negatively about every other project. I should. I, everyone, I think, should keep an open mind, and uh, there, I, I don't like to believe in uh, absolute thinking. Uh, absolute meaning 
uh, cryptocurrencies are bad and they're a scam and there's a Ponzi scheme. That's an, it's an extremist type of view. Uh, and then on the other hand, governments are evil. Fiat money is evil. Everything is bad. I, I don't think that's right either. I mean, it's the people who actually created the government. And, and then if there are people who are in power, it's actually the masses or the majority that are, should be, that ultimately did something or did not do something. And that's why these people are in power. So it's like these things didn't come down from the sky. They, they weren't created on their own. So nothing I think is, nothing is inherently good or bad. It's just what, it's just the situation and what you make of it. So this is what this is what we need more of is like people should forget what forget what uh, Rubini is saying about cryptocurrency. All right, he's a great economist. He got many awards, but that doesn't mean everything that comes out of his mouth is going to be right. Why don't I mean? Why don't what I'm saying is people should use their own brain to to learn about stuff. What I'm saying. Yeah, I guess that's why your name or your dash on Twitter is Brain Drain Omar. Actually, that's a different. That's a. There's a. There's the reason about that. For that name, is Brain Drain is like a, a problem that happens when, like me, I'm working. Uh, I'm working, but I'm working with people who are not in Pakistan. My brain is being drained away from this country. It's being taken to places outside of this country because the people who are working in this country, they don't know how to work well or they have problems. And I can't work with them because of different problems. So my brain is being used by places outside this country. So that's what the, it's kind of, it's, it's about this uh, brain drain hypothesis. Yeah, but is this really brain drain in the sense that you are basically dealing with a situation in which you work in your own country with external, let's say, not employers, but collaborators, and you get paid, and then you pay your taxes in your own country, and you live with your family, and you don't really have to travel or leave or resort to any kind of immigration if you want to make a better living. And that makes a lot of sense in this era of the internet. And maybe that we are the first generation to actually embrace this kind of global model in which it doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter what kind of political system controls you. As long as you have an internet connection, which is able to reach the outside world, then you can basically collaborate and make money from your intellectual power and your knowledge of a foreign language and maybe even make a more decent living than you would otherwise if you took a regular office job. But, but there, there are... There are so many things that can be done locally to 
grow the economy of the country more organically. Uh, there are so many companies out here that are in need of skilled labor. Um, for example, not even, uh, just talking about cryptocurrency and blockchain, uh, they're trying to set up a, a school or an education center where they're going to train people and offer people classes and to learn more about these things. And uh, I was looking at their, uh, how they're trying to teach people. They were doing some sort of mock uh, sessions where they had people come in and talk about what these things are. And uh, I was pretty much disappointed because they really didn't, they really don't have anyone right now who is able to do that really well. They don't have any good uh, teachers and uh, they probably won't end up getting any good teachers because the, the, the opportunities they might be providing are not attractive enough for people who actually are good to, uh, to go there and do something. But, but the same can be said about other things, uh, about other jobs. Um, there are companies here that develop software, but they pay very, very little compared to companies that may be working outside or externally. So if you're a software developer or you're a web developer, you don't care to work for a company over here. You'd rather, much rather work for someone outside because they pay more or it's a better experience. Yeah, I can absolutely relate to that. Here in Romania, we also have the second lowest wages in the European Union. And we are usually perceived as the cheapest labor that you can find on the continent under the regulations of the European Union. We also have at the same time a lot of brain power and a lot of talented people who decide that they make a better living by leaving the country and working for a company outside. And in this regard, we are this, the country with the second highest percentage, or I'm not sure if it's percentage or number, but definitely it's high and it's about leaving the country. And we are only second to Syria. And we know that in Syria, they leave because of the war and due to the policies that Bashar al-Assad makes and all the genocide which was going on. And in the case of Romania, it's none of that. It's just the fact that people are disillusioned with the government policies. They hate the whole corruption which is going on. And they just suddenly realize that they have the kind of citizenship which allows them to work and travel in any other place in Europe. And they would rather do that if they know the language and they have the required competence. And even if they don't have, you have these unskilled workers who decide to go to countries like Spain or Italy or Portugal. It, it, they choose these countries specifically because we have linguistic similarities. We speak languages which are in a way similar and have lots in roots. And they go to these places without knowing anything and they work in construction or in this sector of 
house cleaning or caretaking or being nannies or being nurses, you, you don't really need to speak the language to do a proper job. You just need to understand some basic orders and have some experience in the field. And in this regard, Romanians are cheaper than their nationals. So we have a high employment rate when it comes to people living outside the borders. We have a high demand of skilled workers internally in our country, but we don't seem to find people willing to work for that salary. So that's why we have embraced this global trend of employment. And we have sometimes workers from China, from India, from Taiwan. I guess it's not very uncommon nowadays and we even have outside of Bucharest, which is the capital of Romania, we have a big neighborhood of Chinese immigrants who have built their own Chinatown. So in many ways, what you are describing is a global trend. I don't think Pakistan is as backwards as you portray it. To the extent that I can give you examples of similar phenomenon going on in Romania. And maybe that the scale about which we speak is different and it's more common in Pakistan for certain events or phenomena to happen than it is in Romania, but it doesn't mean that we don't have it. So even though we are slightly more to the West and we have maybe neighbors which are friendlier, and I know that you have a tense relationship with India, just like we have a tense relationship, historically speaking, with Russia. But it doesn't mean... Right, that, yeah, I, yeah. It doesn't mean that the problems aren't there. It doesn't mean that we also don't have bad education, which is subsidized from our tax money. And then you realize that only maybe... 4% of the GDP is being given to education. And you have all these that social problems. 3%? Yeah. Uh, I need to, I, I, I bet you Mars is uh, either that, um, that much or lower, but it's pretty much, uh, uh, um, that's, that's another, uh, Topic, but but uh, uh, ex except for Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, which I think will play a big role, a significant role in providing more financial inclusion, uh, allowing for more equal participation from uh, everyone in the economy. But a bit more than that, I think, is the internet. Uh, for example, if there was no internet. Um, you're living in Romania and I'm living in Pakistan. And if there was no internet, there would be no communication between me and you. Uh, we would not look, get to learn about how you're doing and what what's it like to live in Romania. I would never know from, from firsthand experience directly talking to someone. And then there won't be so many different kinds of jobs and uh, like 
when you're working online, you're talking to people in just about every other country in the world. So I also think that technology like internet and communications technology improvements in that is gonna is is already helping and has already helped people come uh, a long way. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I'm very much aware of the fact that the internet has changed the social dynamics of our societies. And we have many more opportunities, which otherwise we would not have. And when I take a look outside, let's say that I walk the streets and I think about the various jobs that people around me do, I guess they are traditional in this sense. They have been around for decades. You see the regular door clerk, you see people working in public services, you see public servants, you see delivery people, you see bankers, you see lawyers. So it's about these professions which have been around for quite some time. But at the same time, you have this kind of market which has a very high demand but also a very high supply. You have lots of lawyers, you have lots of taxi drivers, you have lots of people selling in stores. And in this regard, you have the kind of situation in employment where anyone is expendable and it's easy to dispose of any employee because you basically have 10 other people who can fill in the shoes of that worker in a matter of days. Whereas in works which require much more intellectual input and give you a sense of creativity and maybe that writing for various cryptocurrency websites is part of this category, it's harder to find somebody who does a great job. And this is maybe a personal detail, but when I was writing for Crypto Insider and they asked whom should we hire to write about different topics and expand our reach, I recommended you just because I knew that you were doing all these maybe obscure topics. You know about all these proof of stake, delegated proof of stake and maybe projects which are not as well known, but have their own communities, which are enthusiastic. And in this regard, it was easy to expand the nature of our content and benefit from a broader audience. It's a great niche to have on every website. And there is no way I could have found somebody from my group of friends, like physical friends I go out with and tell them to fill in the same kind of job and do the same tasks. And in this regard, the internet is very unique because it brings together a set of, maybe it builds a new society which has less, which puts lesser emphasis on physical aspects and who you are, what you look like. It's all about what you think and your brain power and how you can use the knowledge that you have 
in order to improve an existing project. And that's also how cryptocurrencies have come into our lives. It was all about spreading awareness, having an early phase where people, even with Satoshi, I'm not sure if Satoshi is Halfini, but you can have a correspondence. You can find it actually before Halfini has died. He published all the letters and emails that he exchanged with Satoshi. And you can see that it's all about this ethos of sharing knowledge and getting together and seeing how people from different corners of a country or of a continent or the entire planet can actually use what they know and what they can do in order to accomplish something greater, which otherwise would never see the light of day. And this podcast would never exist if it wasn't for the internet. Cryptocurrencies would never definitely exist if there wasn't for this global network of computers which communicate between them and exchange data. And it's wonderful that we get to do all these beautiful actions and have this type of relationship with somebody who maybe maybe that we will never meet. That's what I'm trying to say. Maybe that we'll never have physical contact to shake hands and maybe have a drink together and have a proper talk like humans have done for centuries. But we can have the same kind of intellectual communication from a distance just because we have this wonderful protocol which allows us to. Uh, we, it, before, before, before internet, uh, before internet was any was even a thing, it was like something in the '60s, uh, much more, <clears throat> much more for researchers, and nobody really knew about it. And then gradually, um, there's like an email video that was uh, email came out in uh, early 80s when it was getting uh, easier to use. There's a video on YouTube. If you can, uh, I'll, I'll share it with you. It's talking about how the internet was first, uh, how the first email was being sent from a personal computer. And, it, and, and then the way they talk about it in the video and then they have all this bulky equipment to help them do it. And they're like, if you listen to the video, it's kind of funny. It says, it's so easy. Watch me do this. Watch me do that. And it like, by the time they send the email, it's, 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 for us, it seems like, oh, my God, that takes forever. So it does, but, that's, that, but the point is that right now, the way we look at cryptocurrencies and whatever these <clears throat> things are, some things might seem really easy or like, oh, my God, we've made so much progress. But then if we, once 20 years later, when we look at this stuff, it's all going to go, we're just going to look at it and we're going to say, oh my God, that's, that's how we used to do it. So it's, it's this constant uh, improvement, one, one after the other improvement that happens. And it, so like you were saying, without, without internet, we definitely would not have had cryptocurrencies. And then even with uh, Bitcoin, um, you probably know blockchain was actually invented 
by a guy named uh, Dr. Stuart Haber in the early 90s. But there were no broader applications for it. Nobody really tried to uh, pick it up, pick up on it. And then, uh, and then uh, just the way we might not know every single detail about Satoshi uh, Nakamoto and who they, who they might have been, it's, it shouldn't, I don't think it should be that relevant because in the end, they, what we got from them was Bitcoin white paper and Bitcoin, uh, uh, a Bitcoin client. And uh, uh, then a community took over and started improving the protocol and the software. So in the end, we're not really care. We don't really care too much about who Satoshi was. We just care about what he gave. I mean, yeah, we we should be more concerned about what he gave to us or what what his invention. Uh, and then Satoshi didn't didn't invent everything from scratch because there was a guy who invented blockchain. There was someone who invented internet, and so on and so on. So Satoshi put those pieces of things. He took those tools and combined it into one, and proposed uh, the first peer-to-peer electronic cash system. So uh, do you see what I'm saying? It's, a, it's, a, it's a, an accumulation of the effort of so many different people over the years that turns into whatever product we have, uh, products we have um, today. Uh, I absolutely agree. And it's beautiful that this discussion has come full circle as we have began talking about the issues that we have at a national level and how it's difficult for cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin specifically. Oh, you have a crying baby? <laughs> yeah, that's my, uh, uh, that's my daughter, yeah. Oh, that's lovely. Okay, we're, we're going to end yeah. this quickly, but... I was saying that it's beautiful how we have started from something local or national, and then we advanced to the idea that the internet can change radically everything that we understand about distribution of ideas and evolution of technology. And there is no way for us to even grasp or imagine and comprehend the ways in which the cryptocurrencies that we have today will be used 20 years from now, let alone five years from now. If you take a look at how Bitcoin was five years ago, you'll find a client which was much more rudimentary. You would, ha- you would find wallets which were not as easy to use. Maybe that you required to know a little more about using command lines and programming. Whereas now it has become such a seamless experience, at least for on-chain transactions. It's very straightforward. You have bigger businesses which have taken over many of the aspects which deal with being your salesman. I'm not sure how I should put it. Selling you and allowing you, facilitating the idea of trading and up you mean, to this you mean point, with the exchanges? Yes. Up to this point, it's very hard to envision what we have ahead of us. We can only speculate what the impact will be 
on the society at large, on the way we perceive value, on the way we do our politics at a local, national, and international level. But it's beautiful to know that you have an asset, which maybe that is not good to call it an asset, but the kind of money that nobody can take away from you and which actually allows you to go to your government and say, I want you to do this and I want you to implement this kind of policy or else I will stop using your currency. And we all know what that means when a currency becomes useless and nobody really accepts it anymore as being valuable. And that's the kind, or maybe that's only one side of the revolution that we should be expecting. And as I see it right now, it's either that or we are going to have an Orwellian society in which there is no privacy and you have cryptocurrencies which are absolutely transparent and allow anyone to see your history of transactions without obfuscating anything, without merging the IDs of transactions. So it's going to be even worse than central banks with this kind of glass windows surrounding us and all our activities. And I guess it's our responsibility as people who more or less have a large understanding of the phenomena to educate and to explain to others why it's important to maintain some fundamental ideas and why we should never trade convenience for fundamental rights. So if you have to choose between having a credible and solid sort of value, which also has this type of advanced privacy, and on the other hand, you have something which is faster, easier to use, but is under the direct surveillance of your government, you should understand why it's better to have the first and why it's a powerful mechanism to preserve this system of international trade in which you're free to engage into exchanges with anyone on the planet as long as you have a proper connection with the blockchain. Well, uh, I think, I mean, nobody can say for certain, but um, I don't think all transactions are going to be as transparent simply because there's a market for privacy coins. And uh, there, it's also about supply and demand. If someone puts a coin out there that absolutely has no value, there's no reason to be using that coin, then it will not get used. People will just naturally not use it. So, but with Monroe, Zcash, and uh, some other privacy coins, uh, people want to use them for that very reason that they have financial privacy. So that's um, that's their use case. That 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 you can't. It's hard to tell when you mix all those uh, transactions together. When you have shielded transactions. When you use uh, ring signatures, people don't know. People don't know uh, the origin, and the, they don't know the details that they need to know, or they don't need. They don't know how much, uh, how much, how, 
how many funds a particular address is holding. Um, I think that's uh, that's pretty valuable and that's a use case. And then any coin that allows that, I think that 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 coin will will in the future will have a market and and then it'll have a support system. Um, simply because people want that kind of stuff. Yeah, sure. But what I was referring to is actually the implementation of many of the technologies into Bitcoin, as we know that it's the only one which cannot be censored and doesn't have a single point of failure. And the stronger we make it, the higher chances it has to actually change the world and reach its potential to actually disrupt the crooked banking system which it was created to oppose. And yes, we can make a lot of speculations. We can acknowledge that we have different privacy coins which serve one purpose at one time. But at the same time, we have to be aware that we don't have that many decentralized exchanges that function properly. We have to understand that it's easy to track your IP. It's easy to figure out which addresses you're interested in. And if somebody really tries, they can figure out how much Bitcoin you're holding right now, unless you're very, very careful with your privacy. And that aspect has to be improved in order to have better fungibility and to not have people who discriminate between a coin which was at some point used on Silk Road and one which was issued last week by mining. But anyway, I'm happy that we had this discussion. I would like you to present yourself for the last time and tell the audience how they can follow you and how they can read your work and where you publish on a regular basis. And then I guess we can have a closing moment for this episode of our podcast because we have been going for over two hours and I'm not sure if yeah, I have the patience to I, listen I think much more. The, um, you can read my uh, articles on Crypto Globe. So crypto like crypto and then globe like um, planet, you know, G-L-O-B-E slash uh, Omar, O-M-A-R, and then Faridi, F-A-R-I-D-I. So last name is F-A-R-I-D-I. If you search for contributor on Crypto Globe, Omar Faridi, you can go read um, my articles. And then there's Crypto, uh, just started with Crypto Insider. So crypto and then insider is just the way you'd spell uh, insider. And again, search for Omar Farid. And if you want to follow me on Twitter, then my um, screen name is, uh, or my user handle is brain at brain drain Omar, O-M-A-R. Uh, I think that's, that, should, that should be enough for people to be able to know where to find me. And okay. my article. Thank you very much, Omar, for being a guest on the Bitcoin Takeover. And I hope that 
You're welcome, other discussions yeah. from this first season will be just as enlightening and just as challenging to have so that you get to hear as many points of view and as many perspectives from as many nation states around the world which deal with the same phenomena and actually are posed with the issue of having a Bitcoin takeover. Will we see a larger amount of adoption? Will the governments actually try to ban cryptocurrencies altogether from their territories? Will they censor the internet to prevent certain time, types of data transfers from taking place? Well, that only remains to be seen, but it's always fascinating. And in this early phase, it's good to talk about it and be ready at least ideologically and intellectually to think about the outcomes and the possible problems that we might be facing. And that's the beauty of it. So thank you for listening to this episode of the Bitcoin Takeover. I'm Vlad and goodbye.